Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm flying solo today and flying solo is a pretty apt metaphor for this one because we're doing a bit of aviation history. We're joined by James Scott, who I was just saying in the introduction, has one of the most impressive CVs I've seen in one heck of a long time. He's a multi-award winning historian. He's written Rampage, Target Tokyo, The War Below, The Attack on Liberty, but we're not talking about any of those today. We're talking about a new book. Yes, he's got another one. You're going to want to get your hands on this. It's called Black Snow, a hell of a metaphor of a title there. And it's on the firebombing of Japan. So we're going to do some World War II aviation history, folks. It's not my wheelhouse. I'm going to look like an idiot. But James is a lovely guy and he's going to guide me through it. James, welcome. How are you doing? Zach, hey, thanks so much for having me back on. It's always a, a real treat to come back on with History Hack. So thank you. I mean, there was a bit of a bun fight over who was going to end up doing this one. Um, we managed to just about avoiding punching each other in the face. Um, but I'm, I'm slightly pleased that, and ever so slightly smug that I, I won this one. Um, because this is, I mean, in some places it's going to be quite a grim topic, obviously. Clues in the title. Um, but so interesting to kind of talk about the different layers of this. So I'm going to start with a a dumb question to start with, because some of our listeners might not be kind of aviation buffs. Let's start by talking bombing strategy writ large in the course of World War II, because there are loads of debates tied into this, aren't there? Just war obviously ends up being kind of embedded within this. Um, And a shifting in focus, you know, the discussion about do you just prioritise military targets? And then the distinction getting blurred because industrial targets are inherently military in nature if they're being used to reduce armaments. And then once you're aiming for industrial targets with non-precision weapons, because guided missiles really aren't the, the name of the game during this period, then you see the bombing of civilians. So talk us through how we kind of end up getting to the doctrine that's in place in 1944, 1945. 
Absolutely. And you know, the key to remember is, you know, we are looking, as you noted, sort of at the end of the war with the, and this of course is the, the strategic bombing of the Japanese uh, mainland. And so, but that the bombing of Japan is, does not happen in isolation. I mean, the, the course that America arrives at in 1944, 1945 is after having traveled this long road along with Great Britain through the air war against Europe. So it's really, in a lot of ways, it's an outgrowth. I mean, these two, there's just very much a symbiotic relationship, uh, not only from the lessons learned and things like that, but even from many of the players. I mean, many of the key uh, leaders in the air war against Japan, of course, sort of cut their teeth, so to speak, in the air war against Germany before that. And so, uh, but it really, if you're going to talk about sort of the air war, you almost have to really rewind back to that period of time right after World War I. And you have to sort of look at sort of what the genesis of the, of the strategic thinking was coming out of, of, of the Great War. You know, and of course, that's a war in which, you know, armies just bogged down in these, these horrific trenches, you know, filled with, you know, rats and excrement. And, you know, and it was just this miserable infantry experience. And so, and, 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 and through that comes the, this idea that aviation can, can be the savior of that because aviation can, 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 can go beyond the trenches. It can turn a, a whole nation into a battlefield. And so, so you see this, this, this ideology really begin to develop and it, it's, it's happening on both sides of the Atlantic. It's happening in Great Britain. It's also happening in the United States. And these are these early aviation pioneers that are thinking, how can we, how can we really change how we fight? And, 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 and that leads for the United States, of course, that, that, takes place at what was called the Air Corps Tactical School, which was at the uh, Maxwell um, Field down in Montgomery, Alabama. And here you had sort of America's leading aviation um, thinkers sort of trying to figure out that how best to utilize this new technology, the plane, you know, and of course, it's really one of the most transformational uh, additions to the battlefield in many ways since gunpowder. I mean, you're because you're, 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 you're suddenly taking the fight to, to the city, to the civilians. And so here they start looking at cities a lot like, and, and, and nations a lot like sort of a house of cards, if you will. You know, what is it that makes a nation's war machine function? And what if we pinpoint bomb, you know, uh, p- petroleum fields and, and, and refineries, you know, suddenly you don't have fuel, then your, your tanks won't move, your, your ships can't sail and steam. And so kind of how can you use aviation and this idea of precision bombing to just sort of knock out those key industries that will cripple a nation? And so really, instead of beating a nation to death, you're really just slitting its jugular, so to speak. And so that's kind of the concept that begins to, to percolate. And, and, that, and that's both, in, like I said, in, in Great Britain and in the United States. And of course, where the rubber meets the road is when World War II actually breaks out. And of course, there you suddenly have to put this, what seemed this great theory on paper into reality. And that's, of course, where the challenges really begin. So I'm kind of rambling here, so I apologize. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it's also worth just kind of touching on civilian attitudes to this. And the example that really strikes me here, to use a, a British example, is Chamberlain when he flies out to Munich um, for the conference. And it's the first time he's been in an aircraft. He looks out of the plane window and he's just kind of struck with the horror and the sense of vulnerability that, you know, if you suddenly, if you're at 10,000 feet, what does the world look like and how fragile is civilization beneath you? And, you know, at what point does it become 
okay, inverted commas, to start thinking about, well, if you precision hit an airfield, that's great. If you precision hit an oil refinery, that's great, but this isn't working fast enough and we need a better solution. Is there an obvious point at which there's that shift towards we need another way of, of hitting this population and undermining this war effort? Absolutely. You know, and, and it's a gradual process. It really, I think, uh, you know, everybody sort of begins the war with these, these great sort of moral ideal expectations that, that daylight high altitude precision bombing is sort of how it was described. And by that it's, you know, bombers coming in, you know, five and six miles up, you know, they're using um, new, new bomb sites, the Norton bomb site, for example, in the U S which is a sold as a highly precise uh, weapon uh, weapons um, sighting system that will allow you literally to put a bomb on a pickle barrel, so to speak. So it'll allow you to avoid the civilian carnage, take out just that industrial, just that military target and spare all the surrounding civilians. And of course, the rubber really begins to meet the road, so to speak, when when the war begins and folks realize that, you know, these bombers aren't as aren't as easily defensible as, as they thought. You know, the idea that the B-17 or the Lancaster bomber would be this, this great defensible, you know, bristling with machine guns and whatnot. But, you know, the German Luftwaffe had a, they had a say in this matter. And of course, you know, they were like aerial Rottweilers and they of course pounced. And so, and suddenly just getting to the target became an, an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, Curtis LeMay, who would be one of America's top combat commanders actually said, you know, once you cross that coastline, into 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 mainland Europe, you know, you've you've punched your ticket, you've paid your price of admission, and so that's where the key really became: how can we get there, get our bombs on target, and do that? And of course, that proved to be incredibly difficult. Uh, and so, and, and you also have to really look back too. I mean, the Germans, you know, had also really, in a lot of ways, sort of pioneered the destruction of of civilians and civilian targets. I mean, if you look at the Blitz, you know, of course, which was a uh, which was highly destructive. I mean, over 40,000 um, people killed and and uh, over that you know eight, nine month period, you know, and so you see this sort of escalation. Uh, the Japanese had done the same thing against against the Chinese, uh, about, you know, with the sort of systematic bombing of Chongqing. So you see that sort of gradual erosion of precision bombing. And so you couple that to, you know, the, the fact that, well, hey, they did it to us with the idea that it's a lot harder to hit these targets than we thought. The German economy is a lot more resilient than we thought. Um, you know, the Germans, not only they can, they can draw things in from the occupied nations, you know, they can disperse industry. So this idea that like you just fly in on a few missions, hit a few targets and suddenly their whole economy collapses really becomes like the reality check that, Hey, it's not going to be that easy. And of course the air war in Europe becomes this huge slog, you know, which is originally sold as this idea that it's going to be this sort of painless ability to knock out the industry really just bogs down. And you see, you know, the Americans and the British really sort of tag teaming the Germans, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, uh, the British are, of course, are begin moving over to firebombing cities and, 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 and using incendiaries, you know, the Americans kind of hold fast to this idea that they're going to do precision bombing, but it's going to be this around the clock experience that it will continuously rattle the Germans day and night and whatnot. But even, even with the combined forces of, of both nations, the war just drags on and on and on. 
Uh, and, and so, and of course, you know, that's where these American pioneers who eventually bring the air war to Japan, they're products of this fight. I mean, Curtis LeMay is a, uh, who's ultimately become sort of the dominant general in the Pacific. You know, he's flying these missions. I mean, he flew the Schweinfurt mission, which is one of the bloodiest American air missions, uh, against the ball bearings plant there, in which 60 bombers are lost. Uh, um, you know, so he is, he's a product of that. Uh, Haywood Hansel, who is another one, uh, and he's really kind of one of the air power pioneers who come up through the Air Corps Tactical School, was a huge believer in the uh, efficiency of, uh, of daylight uh, precision bombing. Of course, you know, he had also spent time in, in Europe and, and uh, during that time period as well, sort of seeing the struggles of it. And of course, those experience sort of ultimately set the backdrop and the, the backstage, if you so to speak, for what happens then when the air war moves over to Japan. And so, um, and so that's what I'm saying earlier. It's really an outgrowth. I mean, you don't come in and just blindly start fighting the Japanese. All of these experiences are brought in. All of this expertise, this trial and error is all brought into to the Pacific theater. Yeah, absolutely. It's that classic thing, isn't it? That no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And it's great to sit in a staff college and theorize that, you know, you can hit X and Y and, and Z will be the outcome. But in reality, no, no nation is going to be passive when you're... Exactly. The enemy has a huge say in it all. <laughs> I mean, exactly. you know, and, and, and the German Luftwaffe, I mean, was, I mean, they were just incredibly resourceful. I mean, they're, you know, they were, I mean, so many of those bombers, you know, they just were, go, were going down and then, I mean, they just, it just kept going on and on and on. And so, uh, so that kind of, by the time America gets to Japan, there's this huge war fatigue. I mean, in, in, in the first operation against Tokyo is actually flown in, in November of 1944. And of course, you have to remember that the war against Japan has been going on all along. But for, for the United States, of course, it's been this huge fight back across the Pacific. You know, from the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese sort of steamroll across the Pacific. You know, they take Guam, uh, Saipan and Tinian. You know, they take the... Uh, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, the Philippines soon falls, you know, they take Singapore, Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies, which today is now in Asia. I mean, Japan just builds this huge empire. I mean, it stretches across 20 million square miles, seven time zones. And of course, so from the attack on Pearl, Har- Pearl Harbor in 1941, up until the air war against Japan's, uh, the homeland begins in 44, America's fighting to sort of regain that ground to even get into a position to sort of bring to bear the the technological might of the uh, B-29 Superfortress. And of course, that requires taking back all these islands, uh, sort of this just slog back across the Pacific. So that finally, by the summer of 1944, America has taken the Mariana Islands. And of course, the Mariana Islands, Guam, Saipan, and Tinian, about 1,500 miles south of Tokyo, put, put the Japanese capital for the first time in range of America's uh, land-based army bombers. And of course, you know, that... I mean, in that that capturing of the Mariana Islands, I mean, it's it's best summarized really when, you know, the senior naval advisor to Hirohito says to him when the Mariana falls, he said, hell is upon us. Because, you know, all you had to do was look at what happened in Hamburg, look at what happened in Dresden, and imagine the fury that was going to be raining down from the skies. Now that America's land-based bombers, you know, with with their much bigger payloads, I mean, the, the B-29 had a you know, had two bomb bays, you know, I mean, it was designed to just to bring horror upon, you know, 
whatever target it was it was destined for. And of course, so you, but the fascinating thing too about the air war in Japan is it's not just that fight, that clawing back across the Pacific to bring America there. It's also the story of technology and the idea that America had to build a bomber capable of doing this kind of range. And so, of course, that was the B-29. You know, the B-17 was a, uh, of course, was the bomber most, you know, the American bomber most associated with the war in Europe. But the B-29, I mean, and that was called the Flying Fortress. And the B-29 was the Super Fortress. It was really the B-17's big brother, so to speak. And of course, you know, it it had the capacity to fly 4,000 miles, you know, which is perfect for when you're literally, your, your mission's to, you know, from the Mariana Islands to Tokyo were over 3,000 miles. And so just to, and let's put that in perspective. Okay. You could fly from a base and, and up in England all the way to Berlin and back. And, the, and that's the equivalent of a one-way flight to Tokyo. I mean, so the distances are just that much greater. And so that's what necessitated the, uh, this new bomber, the B-29. You know, it's bigger than the B-17. It can carry more. It's pressurized, which is a huge transformation for these airmen. You know, they're not having to fly in, in heated flight suits and gloves and whatnot. They can literally, one, one of the airmen said best, he said, you know, we loved it. We could fly in our t-shirts, you know? And so, and, and, and it's also, so it has all, so it's really this combination of this rise of technology and this effort to sort of win back these islands that by November, 1944, puts Japan, puts Japan's principal industrial cities, Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, for the first time in range uh, for America's bombers. It's incredible to just think how far aviation technology comes in such a short space of time. I mean, bear in mind that the British are are still sending up the swordfish. And, okay, sure, the swordfish is ideally suited for for certain elements of uh, naval air warfare sure um partly because it is so incredibly slow that nobody really knows how to sight it quite right um when they're trying to shoot it down but let's let's kind of set that to one side for a moment and and marvel at it but i want to pick up on something that um you talked about which was combat fatigue um uh, where are the respective air forces of japan and the u.s in terms of that attrition because you can build these planes and they can do incredible things but they're lumps of metal until you can staff them, get them in the air and start fulfilling a mission. So where are both nations in terms of this fight? Because we, we love to do this thing of, of overgeneralizing and going, look, the fact that they're employing the, the kamikaze is an indication that everything's over already. But nonetheless, things are, are never quite that simple. So, so talk us through the, the realities and the complexities of this. Absolutely. And I'd love to go back just for uh, to your comment about how far aviation's gone as well, because, you know, one of the key players in the air war against Japan, of course, is, is, is General Hap Arnold. And of course, he is the head of the Army Air Forces. And, and so he is the one who's really sort of, he pushes for the development of the B-29. He's pushing for America to defeat Japan from the air. Uh, and of course, he's also a student of Orville and Wilbur Wright. I mean, he literally learned how to fly from the Wright brothers. I mean, the, re- the reason that early aviators actually wore goggles was because Hap Arnold one time got hit by a bug in the eye while landing. So now you see these trademark early aviators and goggles. It's all because of Hap Arnold. And so in this, in his short lifetime, you go from the Wright brothers to the B-29, which of course is this muscular four engine bomber. You know, it's, it's 130,000 pounds fully loaded, actually a little bit more than that. You know, it has propellers that are 16 feet in size. 
you know, the largest propeller ever put on an airplane is put on a B-29. The tail of that plane alone rises three stories. And you compare that to when Hap Arnold learned how to fly. I mean, literally, when he was practicing learning how to fly on these early planes, you know, which, of course, are made out of fabric and, and, uh, and, and wood, they literally had the trainer set up on sawhorses in a workshop. And so you go from Hap Arnold's infancy in aviation to the B-29, which incidentally is the single most expensive weapon system in the war for the United States. $3 billion to develop that. That's more than it costs to develop the atomic bomb. All of that pouring in to build this just massive hemispheric bomber. And so anyway, not to nerd out too much, but I do think that's incredibly fascinating. The logistics of bringing this bomber from the blueprint to the battlefield in and of itself is an amazing story. I mean, the United States literally uh, went so far as to build an entire city in Plainview, Kansas, just to house the workers needed to build this. I mean, this city had they had to build bowling alleys, movie theaters and schools for the children, the worker just to be able to build this aeronautical monster. And so that's really the technology is a big part of this story. And, and, and I do think just as you noted, it's such a fascinating look to think that literally, you know, just three decades earlier, you know, men were flying, you know, out of, you know, on, on basically just wooden planes. So. So, I mean, that's kind of um, where we are. Now, where are we in the war at this point? Well, America has, of course, built this new bomber. It is, um, it's still, the kinks are still being totally worked out of it. Its engines keep, keep catching on fire. Um, and so it's, it's like, it's any new piece of machinery. It's, it's, so it's, it's got a lot of problems. And of course, unlike the war in Europe, where you can bail out over France and, you know, parachute down and hope you'll be rescued by some friendly locals or, you know, you're over the Pacific ocean, 1500 miles each way. If you develop an engine fire, you know, you're, you're, you're out of luck. You're hoping that somebody will destroy or will pick you up. Same thing. If you get any kind of battle damage over Tokyo, you've got to somehow pray that you can keep at least three or four engines going in order to get all the way back. So that of course adds to the significant fatigue and the emotional experience that these airmen are now facing in these and in, in these uh flights these are 16 hour flights i mean you're taking off from the mariana islands and you're flying you're sitting in a b-29 and it's luxurious as it is compared to b-17 you know it's nothing like flying on a uh, on a nice first class aviation plane today you know uh, so it's a long haul experience to be able to do that and so um so this initial excitement that these airmen experience when we first open up the air war against japan of course, is very quickly replaced by uh, the struggles that of how long these missions are, uh, the problems with the B-29s. And then you add to that, the Japanese still control Iwo Jima, which is about 700 miles away from the Mariana Islands. They then start sending retaliatory raids back down on the Mariana Islands and blowing up planes on the uh, on the uh, and hard stands and whatnot. So when the p- pilots are back, you know their their nighttime rest is often interrupted by Japanese raids. So, and of course, their bases at this point are all still incredibly primitive. Many of them are sleeping in tents. You know, the food is not as good as it's going to be later on in the war. And so you sort of that does really contribute to sort of uh, this huge fatigue. And uh, and of course, also on top of that the early missions are not very successful. So then you add to the fact that they're taking all these extraordinary risks and they're not able to get their bombs on the target. You do begin to see that fatigue coming down. Um, Now the Japanese at that point, it's important to remember, I mean, Japan is really, I mean, it's the Japanese economy by the, by June of 44, by the summer of 1944 sort of begins, it sort of crosses over its, 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 apex there and it begins sort of what ultimately becomes its death spiral. Uh, Japan just cannot simply import what it needs to be able to maintain this fight. And a 
big part of that, of course, is the submarine blockade. And that's something that's often overlooked. However, I did write a really fun book about it, The War Below, if anybody's interested. It's all about the submarine war. But the reality is that submarine blockade, because Japan's an island nation, it just robbed it of all of the, 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 the goods it needed to be able to fight this war. The most important one of those, of course, is oil. Without oil, your ships don't steam, your, your planes don't fly, your tanks don't roll. And so, so you're really beginning to see that the, that the Japanese economy is struggling. That's, tr- that's also reflected at the civilian level. Um, you know, the, there's uh, uh, daily caloric intake for, for, for people in Japan is beginning to go down and, and plummeting. Um, you're, you're seeing mal, uh, malnutrition. Uh, young new mothers are unable to nurse. Um, people are having to leave the cities, go out into the countryside to begin to try to forage and get um, uh, things to eat and whatnot. So you're really beginning to see sort of the nation beginning its sort of pretty rough downward trajectory. And of course, on a military level, a lot of Japan's pilots have been chewed up. Uh, you know, they've from from Guadalcanal through you know uh, the Philippines, the retaking of the Mariana Islands. You're just seeing so many of Japan's talented flyers from the beginning of the war are all gone at this point. They're being replaced by new recruits. And the absence of aviation fuel means that the training is just slashed to nothing. You see the not only do you see the kamikazes in places like the Philippines where they're sort of t- attacking ships, you see them in the air as you see kamikazes going after the B-29s in the skies over Japan. So you really, uh, um, so, they, so, so both sides are really facing their own unique struggles as they come into this, uh, into this final climactic act of World War II. Um, and of course, one of the biggest struggles that the Americans realize when they start going after Japan is that how bad the weather is over Japan, uh, that Japan is blanketed by cloud cover so much so that there's some months when they're only about three days a month that you can actually have clear skies. And of course there are these incredibly violent jet streams that blow up uh, high in the heavens over Japan that wreck bombing accuracy. And so America realizes that this idea that this precision pinpoint high altitude bombing is really just it's running into all sorts of meteorological and geographical struggles that are just making this battle so much harder than anyone ever envisioned. What I do kind of love is that we went completely off piece for the last half hour. So we amazingly, we do prep these episodes, listeners. Um, There is like a plan in place before we start recording and this has just been so interesting. I just went, no, I don't really care about the questions, but we should probably get it onto I'm hoping uh, we're getting the basics, the background knowledge yeah, out there. Absolutely. What, what it's, it's brilliant like. stuff. I'm not <laughs> cutting any of this. I don't care what anyone says. They, they can shut up and listen to it. It's fascinating. Um, we probably should get onto the, the, the crux of your book, though, which is that, that firebombing. Um, in centuries, I mean, this is perhaps quite a, an obvious one. I, I kind of think I know the answer to this one before I ask it. But from what I understand, in centuries is quite a clever move because there's a, a tendency to use more wood in the construction of houses in Japan, which makes a deal of sense when you consider that this is an area prone to earthquakes. And if you're building things of stone, sure, there are times when you need to build houses of stone, but if you build something out of wood, then it's, it's easier to kind of deal with some of those um, pressures. Is, is that fair or is that just, you know, dumb, you know, reductionist uh, history? Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. No, totally. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things, we, you know, we've, we've kind of set up nicely now too is with the backstory of the technology and all this because it is that these early missions of that are led by Brigadier General Haywood Hansel, who was, of course, was this just absolutist when it comes to precision bombing, that he's unable to change his mindset. He's unable to say, hey, you know, the struggles we're facing with, um, with you know, the, the inability to hit targets and things like that, maybe we should change it up. He's unable to do that. And so he's so married to this doctrine that has guided America for so long and that he was one of the architects of that it ultimately leads to his downfall. He's fired and he's replaced uh, after literally just about five weeks of missions from November through uh, early January of 45 uh, by Curtis LeMay. And of course, Curtis LeMay then comes in and he is uh, like Hansel. He is a, a product of the air war in Germany. But unlike Hansel, he is truly a combat commander. I mean, Hansel was really a, a, um, a thinker, an intellectual, a planner. Uh, he was not a predator. And so his experience in Europe was much more sort of looking at the economics and the logistics, whereas LeMay was truly out there flying these missions with these men in, you know, in, in, in heavens filled with fighters and bursting flak. So he's, he's come through that hellstorm into land in the Pacific. And unlike Hansel, he is not wedded to any one philosophy, his background, you know, he grew up dirt poor in Ohio. Uh, his mother uh, had the highest education in their household and she only made it to the eighth grade. His father had been sort of this derelict dreamer who kind of Women, it's sort of this itinerant worker who just kind of bounced around. And so LeMay, from a very young age, learned that if he was going to be successful in life, it all came down to him. And so if uh, even as a child, when they lived in Montana briefly, if he didn't fish, he didn't eat. In high school, if he didn't make money, uh, he didn't have money. He put himself through college. He worked all night in a steel mill and literally you know, got off work at three o'clock in the morning, went, slept a couple hours and went to school in order to pay his own way. So he was a pragmatist. I mean, it was just a bootstrap, you know, kind of lifestyle. Um, but it also made him an incredibly tireless worker. In fact, when you read his personal letters throughout the entire war, all, it seems like every other letter he's talking about how he just hasn't had any sleep. I mean, he's truly exhausted coming out of there, but he's also his engineering background and whatnot really he's a problem solver. And so when he lands in the Pacific, he takes over for Hansel. Hansel says to him, look, I hope you were going to continue our doctrine of high altitude precision bombing. And he he cautions him. He says, remember, we're not going to be judged by 
by whether we win the war, but by how we win the war. And LeMay, LeMay takes that seriously. And LeMay begins his missions in January of 45, following that same doctrine of high altitude daylight precision bombing. And of course, he runs into all the same problems with terrible weather, cloud cover, violent jet streams. And of course, within a few weeks, you know, three weeks turns into four weeks and whatnot. And he's beginning to feel this incredible pressure from Washington that, hey, we're, we're, we're nowhere closer to defeating Japan. We've got to hurry up and do this. That's when he begins to say, all right, we need to rethink how we're going about these operations. And that's when he comes back, falls back on the idea of the incendiaries. And of course, he had seen the great success that incendiaries had had in the air war in, in Europe. In fact, he actually had studied the after action photos along with Haywood Hansel of the Hamburg operation. And of course, you know, Hansel was appalled. It's this, this widespread carnage. And, 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 and LeMay looks at him and says, you know, hey, yes, lots of civilians died. But if you look in these ruins, you also see factories and, you know, war industries and things like that. So you're still, I mean, civilians are the casualty of the greater success of, of, of breaking the German industrial back. And he takes that same philosophy back to Japan. Now, to your point about Japan and its construction, absolutely. I mean, Japan was the perfect nation for America to want a firebomb. 98% of Tokyo is made out of wood and paper. I mean, the Japanese didn't even use nails. They, they used this, uh, they joined things up with like wooden pegs and things like that. I mean, so there was really just, and of course there's incredible density. And so when you think of Tokyo today, and I'm sure many of the listeners will have been there and seen images of it. You may have just watched Tokyo Vice on HBO. Who knows? It's the steel and glass high rises and all that. But at that time period, Tokyo was largely one and two story buildings. And these were, you know, wooden structures. Uh, you know, it had, it did have sort of a downtown business financial district, but it really kind of resembled a Hollywood backdrop of Westernization and modernity. Whereas the majority of Tokyo was actually packed into these tight wooden uh, neighborhoods. Uh, the density in one of the neighbor, one of the districts in, in, in Tokyo was literally 135,000 people per square mile. So incredible density, uh, you know, uh, so much of the architecture, not only was it made out of wood and paper, but there, there were no f- natural fire breaks other than uh, some canals in the main river. So you really, um, you had, once a fire started, it just, it had unlimited fuel to feast upon. And so it really, you know, American war planners, and of course, LeMay is not the first one to figure this out. I mean, he gets a lot of the credit for this, but American war planners had really started studying the uh, the combustibility of Japanese cities long before LeMay even arrives in the Pacific. And they, they had already done analysis of Japan's major cities, you know, di- breaking them down literally neighborhood, you know, city ward by city ward as far as how flammable they would be in the case of this type of an attack. So this isn't meant to be a, a one-off incident then. This is uh, a significant change of doctrine. What we're going to do now is we're going to burn these cities to the ground um, and to hell with anything else, because in the process, we'll hit everything and then we've done our job. Is that basically the philosophy now? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, LeMay, like I said, he gets a lot of the credit as being the one that sort of initiates this. But, you know, the, the road to the firebombing of Tokyo had begun much, much earlier. It began with the development of the of napalm and the type of incendiary that we ultimately used. It began with the war planners analysis of Japanese cities. 
uh, of sort of the combustibility of them. Also a look at how Japanese industry operated. Tokyo, for example, literally 50% of the uh, industry in Tokyo was, was done out of cottage, sort of cottage industry type environments in which people had home workshops and they made, you know, they made um, triggers for guns or they made, you know, the pins for grenades and all of these things sort of fed into the larger war machine. And so you really had industry far more dispersed inside of these residential areas uh, than you might find, say, for example, in, in in New York or elsewhere in any other major American or European city. So there's sort of the blending of all those things. And of course, Japan also had this great history of fires. Uh, you know, so the U.S. was aware of that. In 1923, there was a big earthquake in, uh, right off of Yokohama, and it led to this massive fire that burned up much of Yokohama and Tokyo. And and, and that that wasn't that you know, it was just a few years before World War II. And so, in fact, when America was studying Japanese, the combustibility of Japanese cities, brought in experts who had studied that fire. I mean, they brought in guys who had actually been the insurance adjusters who'd gone over there and examined these fires and the type of damage it did. So that they had a real boots on the ground idea of how you might go about burning Japanese cities. That by the time LeMay gets to this point where he makes this decision. America is armed not only with a brand new incendiary bomb that's designed for this type of operation. It's also armed with the type of city data it needs, the density, the population levels, all of that broken down city by city by city so that they can burn them down. And then you know, and on top of that, America had actually built a mock Japanese village in the deserts of Utah to test this. And so 1943, the summer of 1943, America burned down this Japanese village over and over and over again in order to sort of test these ideas and these, these, uh, these weapons that by the time LeMay makes that decision, all his weapon is in place, his bomber is in place, and he has all the information he needs on these cities in order to begin burning them to the ground. So he's really armed with everything he needs by the time March of 1945 rolls around. So let's talk about the, the 9th of March, 1945, which is, you know, one of the, the big focuses here. Um, and particularly the, the teams that are sent in, I'm thinking sort of the pilots. I'm guessing we, we know at least a bit about who they were and what their wartime experiences were. Talk us through where they are at in their wartime stories at this point. Yeah. yeah so March, March 9th, 1945, that's when LeMay makes the decision that, the pinpoint bombing is not going to work and we're going to have to fly these incendiary missions. And, uh, and so, and so he's got at this point, you know, he's got a, a, a pretty big force. It's not nearly as big as it will be by the end of the war, but he's got enough that he's capable of sending over 300 planes into Japan. Of course, the B-29 is still a very new plane. So a lot of the crews are, are young and inexperienced. Some of them have come out of the European uh, theater uh, where they were fighting. Others are fresh and they've just gone through uh pilot training, navigation or whatnot, and had been sent to B-29 school, so to speak, in order to be able to fly these planes. Um, So it's kind of really a mixed bag on that part. You know, you've got um, combat veterans as well as sort of as well as young new folks that are literally, this will be their first combat experience coming in there. For this mission, of course, LeMay, it's, it's, it's a radical departure on many, many levels. So not only is he you know, going to go and say, we're going to, we're no longer going to do precision pinpoint bombing and we're going to use incendiaries, but how we fly these missions is going to change. And by that, he's going to bring these planes down from being at 30,000 feet up here in the jet streams, all the way down as low as about 5,000 feet. 
And the idea being that we're going to bring them in under the cloud cover, under the jet streams. Um, and, and, and also we're going to switch them from day to night because that's going to give them the added protection against Japanese fighters and, and, and things like that. They're going to have that cover of darkness. They're going to eliminate formation flying. I mean, normally when you would fly, you would come in and in formation the way they've been doing in order so that you can have all of your defensive you know, guns aimed out and sort of, sort of circling the wagons and protecting everybody, bringing them in low, going to fly them singly, coming in, drop their bombs. And so, um, so really the whole, he just kind of reimagines the whole type of attack that it's going to end up being. And of course he then has to set out what's going to be his big target area. And he picks the, they pick the area of course, which had been given to them, you know, from, from war analysts, but it's roughly a 12 square mile uh, rectangle. And it kind of, if you look at it from the air, it actually looks like a irregular jigsaw piece, but it sort of covers uh, a number of these city wards, including the most dense, uh, Asakusa ward, which is 135,000 people per square mile. So this is really the dense heart of downtown Tokyo that they said. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. How do the pilots feel about this? On two levels, you know, what you're saying about outgoes formation flying and uh, at least semblance of protection, even if sometimes it's a bit illusory. You know, if you've got lots of buddies with you, you feel like you've got a better chance. Um, But also they know what they're carrying. They know where they're going. These men aren't idiots. They know what the consequences are going to be. They've flown enough missions to see the sort of damage that these types of ordnance do. How does that affect them? Uh, do we kind of have details of, of what they think? Do, do people end up kind of complaining and sort of going either publicly or privately, you know, this sucks. I don't like this. Um, sure, they've got orders. They've got to do what they're told. But do we still get that kind of discontent yeah. being murmured I, I think the biggest thing was okay so even LeMay's own um you know anti-aircraft officers as artillery officers were telling him look if you're going to go in it it, it 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 just you know barely a mile over you know over the ground into one of the Japan's most densely guarded cities uh you're going to suffer extreme losses and uh, it potentially as high as 70 percent and so if LeMay's sending you know a, a 300 planes, a little over 300 planes, you know, a, a B-29 crew typically has 11 men on board. And of course they were going to take some of the gunners out because they were stripping the weight of these things in order to carry more bombs. So they took out the, um, the guns, uh, the gunners. And so, you know, you're really bringing in, so you're looking, if you're going to lose 70% of that, you're going to lose 2000 lives. You know, you're going to lose uh, 200 planes. I mean, it's really just this huge gamble. And of course that's not lost on these airmen when they're, when they're hearing this. And of course, you know, they're, they're saying this is a suicide mission. I mean, one of the guys actually wrote in his diary, he said, when they walked out of their briefing mission, the briefers all looked at them like this was sort of like the last supper, you know, <laughs> I mean, that they're, you know, we're not going to ever see you guys again. And so I think that's what hangs over these men more than anything, which is this, just this, this mission is a suicide mission. I mean, you're taking us into the heart of Japan. You're taking our guns out. You're sending us in just 
barely above the ground, you know, not in formation. I mean, we're expendable. Uh, does the gravity of burning these cities kind of hit them? Not really at this point. You see that later, and that's reflected far more later on. But you got to remember at this point, a lot of these men are demoralized. They've, you know, they've been flying these precision missions that aren't working. They're having to go back over and over and over again to the same targets, which every time they go back they're as LeMay said, they're punching the price of admission, they're risking their lives and they're not getting there. So at this point, I think if anything, they're thinking, well, Hey, maybe this will actually hurry up and bring it into the war. And if it's, that's going to happen, then we're in favor of that. It's not until later in the war after they start having these great successes and they start burning up the cities and they start burning even smaller and smaller and smaller cities and the, the anti-aircraft fire goes away and the Japanese fighters that you start to begin to see the men having questions about, hey, we're just burning up neighborhoods as full of civilians. And so, but that, that comes a little bit later. I'm guessing the 70% losses stat doesn't play out in reality. Uh, obviously, loss is very high amongst um, bomber commander of all nations during the war. But I mean, 70% losses, you can't sustain that. So uh, what's the reality in terms of casualty rates? Exactly. And you know, LeMay, LeMay took that sort of with a grain of salt. And that's one thing that's important. That's where his experience as a combat commander comes in and, and where his due diligence as a, and his engineering mind come in. He had studied the photographs of Tokyo. He was looking for the, where the anti-aircraft um, batteries were. He was studying whether they had the capability for low uh, anti-aircraft fire. He was also gambling that Japanese are so used to them coming in so high that if you suddenly totally change that out and come in low, they won't be able to adjust quickly enough. Uh, you're going from day to night. Like this was really going to be an aerial sucker punch. I mean, so to speak, it was designed to just throw them totally off balance. And so, uh, and so he, and he also knew that the Japanese did not have very good night fighter capability. And so by bringing them in at night that the fighters would just, they would struggle with that. And so he, he said, you know, look, it, it wasn't a gamble. It was a calculated risk. And so, and that's, um, and he was right. You know, he sends up 325 bombers for this mission. Of course, not all of them make it to Japan. They have engine troubles and things like that. And some of them turn back, but, but the majority of them do. And of that, he only ends up losing about 14. So it's actually a really small loss. I mean, it's less than 5% uh, where his experts have been telling him he could lose up to 70%. And so, and of course he begins, so he, he says, you know, look, we're going to continue this streak before the Japanese can adjust, we're just going to go on a barrage. And over the course of the next, just less than 10 days, he flies five of these missions and just pounds, you know, Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, Tokyo. I mean, just within the span of literally just about 10 days, burns about 32 square miles of Japanese cities. And of course, Tokyo is the big one. I mean, March 9, 1945, he just, he burned 16 square miles of the Japanese capital that night. That's something to just kind of pause and, think upon 16 square miles yeah. is a vast area um, i mean think about manhattan island is about 21 square miles so i mean he burned literally just under the size of manhattan island in new york and of course that's um, 105,000 uh people died in that mission i mean it's literally one of the most destructive raids of world war ii and it's really one of those you know everybody you think of when you think of airborne horror and stuff like that what's the first city that comes to mind dresden and dresden's like you know roughly twenty-five thousand, maybe a little more so i mean this is four times the amount of people killed in dresden 
you know, and yet it's not, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, people aren't as familiar with this story. Um, I'm still processing that. Um, that's horrendous. Let's stay with the, the civilian casualties and, and their experience. For those on the ground, um, apologies for the most inane comments you'll hear all week, but it must have been horrifically harrowing for them. Um, how do people try and escape the inferno? Absolutely. And I'll tell you one of the things I was really keen on with this book is I wanted to get at that experience. And I really, you know, too often in, in books like this, you know, the, the American experience is easily explored through records and oral histories and interviews, but, uh, but, but very, very seldom as much attention given to what it was like for the Japanese. And I really wanted to, to set out and change that. And so I spent a good bit of time in Tokyo uh, interviewing survivors of the firebombing and actually getting, and I worked with uh, a couple translators to actually go through the Japanese records on this because the Japanese government in the 1970s set out to do a, a pretty miraculous job of documenting what the air war was. And so they actually put together about 5,000 pages uh, of accounts and documents and things like that. And uh, it's, it's divided up over, over five volumes and, and the entire first volume, which is over a thousand pages is dedicated just to survivor accounts of the firebombing of Tokyo that night of March 9th, March 10th. Uh, and these are firsthand accounts and, uh, and, and the Japanese really go through and they break down just, you know, what the experience was like city ward by city ward, you know, fatalities, property damage, things of that nature, their maps and whatnot. And so, of course, none of this is available in English. And so, you know, that prohibits a lot of Western historians from working with it. But, uh, but I, like I said, I worked with translators to help me get through it and to, to cover this material. And then, of course, I did interviews with survivors, which was incredibly powerful. Um, folks, you know, they were children at the time, for the most part, teenagers, and who lived through this experience. And, uh, and it truly is. I mean, what, what, what's fascinating is that it, it, how these fires very quickly grew. And that was kind of the idea is that, you know, you sort of set these fires and they merge and they merge together. And what, what, what happened is similar in, to Dresden and Hamburg is it, it creates a firestorm. And by that it's a, it, it becomes its almost its own weather system. And so as all this hot air is escaping vertically, it starts pulling in, you know, heavy oxygenated cooler air from sort of the ground level. And it creates these at times hurricane force winds that it sort of all comes in there and so literally in the span of about half an hour, this fire goes from being a bunch of isolated sort of individual blazes to merge into this one massive fire that, that ultimately expands across several districts. I mean, it grows that large that it just, it becomes a tidal wave. Uh, it's a tidal wave of fire and it sort of moves leeward across the city of Tokyo. And so really for those residents who were trapped in that, survival came down to, to lock for the most part. Um, <clears throat> you either lived on the fringes of the fire and were able to easily get away, or you survived often through just pure luck because the temperatures on the ground, of course, they varied significantly depending on which pockets you were in and whatnot, but they reached at times as high as about 2,800 degrees. I mean, it was, it's hot enough actually to be able to break down and melt concrete and steel. Um, you had... Afterwards, you found um, roof tiles that had fallen into burned houses and fused with the dishware and kitchens. I mean, that's how hot it was that your your roof tiles melted with your kitchenware. Uh, pockets full of coins just melted into balls. Um, 
you know, elevator shafts and steel roof structures warped sliding boards outside of playgrounds did the same thing. And so, and the Japanese government had been really bad about preparing the populace for the, the possibility of these types of raids, even though, you know, they were used to fires in Japan, even though they had seen what had happened to Germany and whatnot, they, they just didn't take it seriously enough. And so the, the, the best case scenario is the government told people to dig these little yard trenches and whatnot. And of course, almost everybody that got in one of these foxholes died uh, because it just, the, the fire just consumed everything. People fled inside of concrete buildings, of course, like schools, train stations, things like that. These of course were, concrete and rebar uh, buildings where they thought they might have more protection. And initially they did. But so as the survivor said, as the fires closed in, you could literally, you'd be uh, one of the survivors describes it, watching the glass begin to melt in the windows. And of course, once that melts, and of course, these auditoriums, these classrooms, these, they're, they're packed with survivors at this point, the sparks begin to come in. And of course, the air is superheated at this point. So clothing ignites, hair ignites. And I mean, this, these fire starts sort of hopscotching across all these people until next thing you know, just everything just is on fire. I mean, it's just some of the people jumped into swimming pools to try and survive, canals, things like that. Of course, the water at times turned superheated, evaporated. Uh, one of the women I interviewed, actually, she, uh, fires were surrounding her and her, her father. Her father literally crouched on top of her. Uh, often in these kinds of cases, survivors sort of grouped together, like a safety and numbers kind of thing. And so she and her father ended up at the bottom of a pile of people. Um, the next morning, I mean, she, of course, lost consciousness. There's, you know, the oxygen's all out of the air. It's filled with poisonous gas. But the next morning, she realize they, they, they wake up, they get out from under this pile of bodies and they survived. And the only reason they survived is because they were shielded by a scorched pack of other people that were on top of them. And so, um, you know, I mean, that's kind of the horrific, I mean, hellacious experience that it was. And, and, and so often survival came down to luck. I mean, to being, you know, one, one, one account I, uh, I read was a guy, you know, he was in a, a bathroom of a school and there were about 30 people inside that bathroom and they were taking the water from toilet tanks and dousing themselves. And of course, as the fires closed in, everybody passed out because of the lack of oxygen. And there were about 30 people in there and he's like one of the only survivors the next day. And of course, you know, he passes out, but he doesn't die and he's able to wake back up. So it really, I mean, it's, it's body the physiology of individual bodies. It's luck. Um, that, and, and so it's just, it's, it's really, there's not like a rhyme or reason as to who survived when and where, unless you were happen to be on the fringes of the fire area and were able to escape. Uh, but the conditions on the ground were just the asphalt liquefied, you know, and it became like a sticky tar. Um, embers were raining down and it was really, really loud. I mean, all the survivors talked about it. it was like a roaring freight train, how loud this fire was. And, uh, and, and, and your eyebrows burned and your eyelashes burned and the hair inside your nostrils. I mean, it was just, just an awful, hellacious experience to be caught in that firestorm. I, I don't have anything profound to say in response. Yeah. I mean, what can you honestly say um, in relation to that? Um, I'm, I'm not going to come out with a name comments because that trivializes it too much, but yeah, and that's wow. you know it, it's it's you know the in the next morning. I mean, I really one of the, the things to look at too is like what did Tokyo look like the next morning? And I, and I'll tell you one of the 
one of the accounts I read of one of the rescue or first rescue doctors to make it in there. They got into the center of the area where they were supposed to set up. And he said, like, everything had burned up so much so that there wasn't even really dust or ashes anymore. It was like the fire had just consumed everything in that spot. Uh, so it was just ground. That was it. And, and the next morning, you have to remember, it is 16 square miles of Tokyo. There are some facades of concrete buildings. There are the, the, the stone or the brick chimneys from, from bathhouses and factories survived. Um, but largely, you know, so much of it is, is, of course, flattened. And you have to remember, this is March and it's cold in Tokyo. And in fact, it had snowed just a few days earlier. And some of these survivors talked about, you know, they, they climbed out of these swimming pools or out of these canals and and they laid down on the ground because there was still warmth coming from the ground because the fires had been so intense. And so, uh, and it literally, you know, bodies were just reduced to charcoal. I mean, one rescue worker in his description of it said, you know, they went into what had been a house and they found this huge lump of, of what appeared to be like charcoal. And as they started sort of prying it apart, they realized that it was a family of five who had been in a, they'd all gotten in the bathtub together and sort of embraced and just literally melted together. Um, people's internal organs boiled and their torsos burst open. Uh, you know, same thing happened to heads. Um, so it really just, it, it was just a, I mean, as awful of an experience in, in, in landscape as you can imagine, it's like the apocalypse, you know, and these survivors that did survive that this was the, the world that they woke up to the next day. You know, they'd gone to bed the night before in their houses under blackout conditions and blankets. And then the next day, Tokyo was gone. And so, um, so it's really a, uh, just an extraordinary situation. Two cities that don't end up getting firebombed are, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And part of the reason that um, I think Hiroshima, at least, was targeted was because it hadn't been firebombed. And so it was a way of assessing what kind of impact uh, the nuclear weapon could have on a civilian area. Um, how does this firebombing end up paving a way for Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Is there this kind of sense, well, look, we firebombed these people. If we nuke them, it doesn't really make much difference now. Yeah, and I mean, that's yeah, it, it, precisely that. I mean, you know, Tokyo is, is sort of the, the, the moral turning point. You know, up until the attack on Tokyo, America had publicly been telling the, you know, the American public, uh, the government had the military that, you know, we we use precision bombing, you know, this is the difference, you know, we're, you know, we're morally superior because we're only going after military targets and whatnot. And of course, Dresden happens just a few weeks right before this. And literally as, as American war planners in Washington are increasingly pushing LeMay to firebomb cities, you've got secretary of state Stimson out there telling the, the American public, yeah, we, we don't firebomb cities. You know, that's not how we operate. That was, you know, we were going after the marshalling yards at Dresden and whatnot. And, and yet all this operation is under works. And of course, so there's, there's a huge question is how is the American public going to respond to an attack of this magnitude that, that leads to this, this high level of civilian deaths, men, women, and children, you have burned to death. And, and, and so they're very cautiously, they're monitoring the editorial pages of newspapers. They're monitoring yeah, the, the, the news coverage and the, the, the print coverage, the radio, all that to sort of see what the reaction is. And there isn't any pushback. 
I mean, Time Magazine actually comes out and says, you know, properly kindled Japanese cities will burn like the autumn leaves. And, and there's so much at this point, this war fatigue in the United States. Uh, America's just come through this, you know, long war in Europe. Germany's now out of it. And the idea that it's going to take four years of bombing to bring Japan to its knees, like, a, you know, similar to what had happened in Europe. I mean, there, there's just no patience for that. And, uh, and, and, and so the American public's ready for this to be over. And so, if anything, they celebrate LeMay's fire rate. In fact, I went and looked through his personal papers in the uh, Library of Congress, and there were all these letters in there from, you know, Rotarians and Cub Scouts. I mean, they came from Ohio and South Carolina. They came from South Africa and, and Europe. I mean, like fan mail as a result of this. And so that sort of shows that it sort of paves the way for the American public to not be outraged when the United States introduces the atomic bombs at the end of the war. And of course, because at this point, by the time, by the time Hiroshima happens, America's already firebombed over 60 Japanese cities, you know, burned them all up. I mean, 170 square miles roughly of Japanese cities have been burned down. And so then they come in. I mean, and Hiroshima was intentionally left off the target list because America needed a place to test what it looked like. And so, uh, I mean, Hiroshima in a lot of ways was an atomic bomb lab. There's a way to see what these weapons did. So that's kind of how it, you know, had there been huge pushback against after the attack on Tokyo, it, things might've changed differently. There might've been more reluctance on that, but there simply, there wasn't. So that opened up the door for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. James, we're out of time and I'm gutted because I could talk to you for another hour on all of this. It's been long winded too. So I'm sorry. Hey, no, you're detailed and interesting. There's a massive difference. I waffle, you educate. Um, I, I, I kid you not, I could, I could listen to this for another hour. Um, people are going to want to go and buy this book, folks. Black Snow, The Firebombing of Japan. It will be out when this podcast goes live. We're deliberately holding it to make sure that, you know, all of that can happen. James, thank you so much. Please come back. Um, Sam, thank you. It's, it's been a joy. It's been horrific, but it's been a joy. <laughs> Zach, thanks so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 